Welcome back to another episode of Hot Pizza Ass. Today's guest is someone who's kind of become a mentor to me. He's given me some of the best advice I've ever received in my career over the years. And he also gives incredible advice to everyone on his podcast, Industry Standard, where he interviews notable people in the entertainment industry and asks them how they got to where they got in their careers. And every episode is honestly spectacular. This is probably the least you'll ever hear me talk on an episode of Hot Pizza Ass because I really just wanted to listen to everything Barry had to say. And I wanted to share it with you guys because I think that you'll find this to be really inspirational, especially if you're feeling low or stuck or slightly uninspired right now in your career which is completely understandable with everything going on in the world right now. So without further ado, here's Barry Katz. I can't yes. believe I made the cut. I can't believe I made the cut and I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm on your list. <laughs> You're on my VIP list, like not just my list, like my dream people to have on the show list. Um, can we just like jump right into how did you start how did you come up in comedy like you have such an interesting path can we talk about that really quick for anyone that's not familiar with your show and all the things that you do you realize that after you ask this one question when i finish answering it the podcast will be over <laughs> okay should we not go there <laughs> no it's it's great uh let me see if i can tell you the story as quickly as possible so i grew up in longmeadow massachusetts Western Massachusetts, and uh, my dad passed away when I was four. And throughout my life, I used to explore in the basement and this stuff. And one day, I pried open an old rusty file cabinet, and there were all these albums. And the albums were crazy because it was all African American artists, except for three artists with uh, who were Caucasian. And they were all comedy records. It was Jonathan Winters, Comedy and Tragedy, Smothers Brothers, uh, the one where he was banging the guitar over uh, the other one's head, and the button-down mind of Bob Newhart, which historically, for your uh, viewers and listeners, that was an album that they asked Bob Newhart to do Warner Brothers Records did in 1959. He told them he'd never done stand-up comedy before. He was a sketch guy. And they said, don't worry about it. Just find a place, record the album. And that was Warner Brother Records' first gold record in their history in 1959. His, uh, his record was the number one album of music and comedy in the world at the time. And so I found those, and then I, uh, I didn't have any money, so I had to get S&H Green Stamps, which for your older audience will know, but your younger audience won't. What happened back when I was a kid, they put one green stamp in each uh, shopping bag for each dollar that you spent. And then you'd tape them, you, you'd, you'd lick them and put them in these books. And one book was worth $10. And I remember, I, I think I got five books and I went to the redemption store and got one of those fold down record players and started playing the music in the file uh, cabinet, all the African-American artists like Shirley Bassey, Goldfinger, Diana Ross, uh, The Supremes, Louis Armstrong, Nat King Cole. And I realized that I had the rhythm of a furnace. So I started listening to the comedy records and I was inspired by Bob Newhart and specifically a routine that was very famous at the time and still now 
that you should check out called the driving instructor. And Bob Newhart was a guy who, who did dialogue humor. So it was like a different kind of comedy than anyone listening is used to. And there's only one person that I can think of that I've ever seen do a form of it. And another thing you should check out on YouTube is Ellen DeGeneres' first Tonight Show. And on it, she did one three-minute routine as part of a routine called Conversations with God, where she had a conversation with God, but she never imitated God's voice. And that's what Bob Newhart did. He would create the whole uh, scene, but he would not do the character of the person. He would just um, have a conversation like almost like sounding like you would on the phone where you're, you know the guy's carrying on a conversation with a girl, but you don't hear what's on the other side, but they're sort of repeating it back to you. And so then I memorized it and I performed it at a high school talent show in front of a thousand people. And it killed harder than the Bob Newhart record because he, you know, was doing, he wasn't like a Def Jam comic. He was and he was performing in front of a hundred people. I was performing for a thousand. I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. <laughs> and, but I didn't think anything of it. And I went to Boston University. And in 1978, uh, there was a blizzard that paralyzed the city. It was shut down uh, completely uh, a federal emergency. There were no cars on the road. And I remember standing in Kenmore Square at midnight on a Saturday and hearing laughter. I'm like, this is crazy. And I look over and there's a pub that is still there to this day called Crossroads, ironically, Crossroads. And you open the door and it's one of those things where there's a stairway going up immediately. Mm -hmm. And I hear the laughter, but you know what happens when you walk up a stairway? You're looking at stairs the whole way. You don't see anything. And then there's a banister and I started looking by the side of the banister and there's feet and I can see people sitting about 30 people. And I look and there's a guy on stage. He's got a foot on the ground, a foot on a chair, strumming a guitar. I'll never forget this. And this is what he said. He was sort of singing. He said, Rachel, my dear, wish you were here. Oh, how I loved her having sex with Rachel was like a rock concert. Frisbees would fly around the room. Beach balls would hit me in the head. And every time Rachel wanted more, she'd light a match. And then he said, thanks. And after he said, thanks, he just walked off stage to applause, walked past me down the stairs and out the door. And it was like, and I just ran down the stairs and like a movie, looked both ways, gone. No way. And I, and I ran back to the <laughs> bartender and I said, listen, what, uh, what happened here? Who, what, uh, what was that? She said, stand-up comedy uh, every Saturday night here. Uh, like, well, who was that? Uh, that's the first comedian I've ever seen live. She said, that was Stephen Wright. And so Stephen Wright was the first comedian I ever saw live. That's amazing. And so I asked to, uh, if there was an open mic, because I thought, hey, well, I want to do this again. 
and they said Monday night come at six and sign up and I was swimming and I just shaved my head uh, uh, for the championships I was like captain of the swim team and um, I go back there and there's a guy hosting this huge guy named Ross Bickford they called him the taxi driver and he's killing and it's packed and the comedians are going on they're doing okay but you know He's like fucking killing. I've never seen anything like it. And I get introduced, and right when I'm being introduced, he says, This next guy, uh, very funny gay guy. Uh, I'm just kidding. He's not funny. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I hear he's hung like a buffalo. Please welcome Barry Katz. And so I was just eviscerated before I went on, and I said some line like, You know, you're not supposed to talk about what happens between us or whatever. And then I just sat down. And I said, listen, I'd like to do a routine that inspired me when I was a teenager. It's a Bob Newhart routine. It's called the driving instructor from the button down line. And it goes something like this. And I did the bit. It killed again, like destroyed. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. But like Stephen Wright, I didn't know how to leave a stage so I just said thanks and I walked off stage and out the door I thought you know you're not supposed to say goodbye to anybody say thank you to anybody just leave and I hear this heavy footsteps running behind me and it's Ross Bickford the taxi driver the host <laughs> he said where are you going kid that was amazing where'd you come from I, I, I it's incredible I, I, I will you come back again next week I said uh, yeah I, I, I can do that he said listen I have some advice for you, kid. I said, yeah, anything. What is it? Hey, listen, when you're doing somebody else's routine, okay, don't mention their name. Just steal the bit. That's all you got to do. Nobody's ever going to know. It'll be incredible. Wow. And I, 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 said, I said, really? He said, yeah. Why do you think I killed so hard? I'm doing everybody else's act. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I left and I never went back there. And I went to my room and started writing my own material. And then I started going on at all the comedy clubs and started doing well at the open mics, getting some bookings. My first paid booking was with uh, Kevin Meany and Dana Gould in Cape Cod, the late Kevin Meany, and a comedian named Tony V, who's very, very funny guy from Boston, actor. And then um, what happened was some comedian saw me named Chance Langton, who was a comedian in Boston. He said, listen, do you want to be the doorman at my club, play it again, Sam's? I'll pay you $10 a night. I'll let you go on it for five minutes at five minutes of 2 a.m. I said, sure, I'll do it. So after four headliners, I'd go on for five minutes and bomb half the time get crushed but I'd take the door and I'd be counting all this cash and I'd make ten dollars a night and then the owner fired the guy and hired me to book the entire club when I was in college and so I cleared the decks and I brought in the people that I thought were extraordinary who nobody gave the time of day to so mm -hmm. Bobcat Goldthwait hosted Wednesdays Dennis Leary Thursdays Dana Gould Fridays Saturday, Lenny Clark, who at the time was the biggest star in Boston, who you might remember from Rescue Me. And mm -hmm. I wanted him at my club on Saturday so bad. He said, hey, listen, Barry, the other club pays me $500 a, a night. 
you got a little shitty comedy club. You're never going to be able to afford me. I said, I'll pay you $1,000. He said, what? I said, I'll pay you $1,000. I don't care if I lose money. Show me who you're with, and I'll show you who you are. I want you next to me. And he took the money, and I had him Saturdays and Sundays was Anthony Clark from Yes, Dear. And I had Paula Poundstone and Stephen Wright and Jonathan Katz, and I, I built this amazing club that became a hangout for comedians. And, um, and then I created my own booking agency called the Boston Comedy Company, and I started booking one-nighters and comedy clubs all over New England. And that's how I started getting big in Boston. And then I got married and my wife passed away at 23. And I realized that I wanted to get out of the city, even though it was like I'd become so successful there. I realized that I needed to start something new. And, and so I left the person in charge there who was there. And I got in my car and I drove to the New York City, the 79th Street Boat Basin exit. I made a left-hand turn, stopped at the first bar. There was a pay phone and a, and a yellow pages. I called real estate agents. The first apartment I looked at at 82, I think it was 82, 82nd Street on Central Park West. It was a $935 a month studio in 1988, I think. And um, I was in New York City. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was there and I was ready to make things happen. And I wanted to become a manager and I had to figure out how. And I'll keep going for a second. And a friend of mine, Eddie Brill, was operating a comedy club in Greenwich Village mm -hmm. next to Il Molino in the famous firehouse on West Third Street down from the comedy cellar. He left. He said, if you want it, you can have it. I met with the owners. I decided to turn it into the Boston Comedy Club in New York City. Simultaneously, I went to a place called Spotlight, which was the number one agency in the world. They represented Leno and all these. But I said, I want to be here. They said, you want to be an agent? I said, no, I want to rent an office. They rented me an office the size of like a Cheez-It for $600 <laughs> a month. I had to pay the money. I overpaid, but I wanted to be in. And I, again, show me who you're with, and I'll show you who you were, you're, who you are. And I was with the best. And so I was booking, and I start, and then I realized I got to be a manager. And I, I started managing young talent who I thought were going to be visionaries who weren't making any money. And I had money from the club, so I wasn't worried about it being profitable right away. And I started representing teenagers. And my first client helped me set up the lights and the sound system and the chairs and the Boston Comedy Club in the first show in 1988, a little redheaded 18-year-old named Louis C.K. <laughs> and uh, throughout that time, I started managing people like Chappelle and Wanda Sykes and Jeff Ross and Jim Brewer and Daryl Hammond, Dane Cook and and so many other young people that were uh, amazing talent that nobody really gave the time of day to at the time, but I really believed in. And luckily, uh, with my eye and their talent, uh, 
it, it all worked out. Yeah, <laughs> you had like just that story alone is like worth the whole podcast. <laughs> are, are we are we done? We're done. That's that's it. No, that's so amazing. So, like, when you were looking at people that you wanted to work with um, that weren't established names, like, what is that thing that makes you realize, oh, they have something, or there's something marketable about this person? Like, how do you even look at undiscovered talent? It's a really hard thing to tell you because I don't expect that anyone listening or you or anyone watching believe me because it's just something that happens inside me that i just have a feeling and i always know when somebody's going to make it now let me preface that i don't study every artist in comedy and say okay you're gonna make it you're not gonna make it you're gonna make it you're not gonna make it it's just people that I sort of cross paths with in my life that I feel there's an opportunity or something. And I think that it's going to happen. Like when I first met Dave Chappelle, uh, I remember the manager of the club, Jason Steinberg, called me and he said, Barry, there's this kid I just saw on the open mic night. I want you to come back Tuesday and see him. And I remember getting there as the club was, you know, filling up with people. And um, I saw him and I met him right in the middle of the room and I shook his hand and I said, I want to manage you. Um, I think you're going to be one of the biggest stars in comedy. Uh, I think you're going to win Emmy Awards. You're going to be the most respected comedian. Uh, out there you're going to change the face of this business and I want to be there and I think with my help um, you can get there faster you're going to get there but I think I can help you get there and he looked at me and said you, know, you haven't even seen me perform you haven't even watched me on stage how why why would you say I don't, I don't have to I know it's going to happen and I, I want to represent you. And, uh, and I did, and I represented him for eight years and I think seven television pilots in eight years and $400 million movies and, and over 40 different late night sets with different material. And, um, you know, he's one of those guys that I, uh, I love. I, I love him. I loved him. I have always respected him. And, um, and, you know, even when I was fired, you know, after his father died, he, he made a lot of changes in his life as people oftentimes do when you lose control and you can't control variables. You, you do things like that. But I mean, I, in fairness, you know, I, I'll smile and say I probably would have been fired anyway because it was a, there were, you know, when you do seven pilots in eight years and none go the distance, you know, it's, it's tough. But I've had great experiences with artists that just always blew me away. I think, I think it was Stella Adler long ago, the great historic acting coach 
said this, and I think this answers your question a little bit, is that it's not enough having talent. You have to have a talent for your talent. And I think I'm attracted to artists that have a talent for their talent. And your audience is probably saying, well, what the fuck does that mean? You know, for Chappelle, Chappelle's talent was the fact that he was an old soul and he was able to transcend that old soul to a young person's body and a young person's act. And so his material was like that of a 40-year-old. So if he was a 40-year-old comedian, probably no one would ever be interested in him. But he was 18, and he was doing incredible bits. I'll never forget one of the first bits I saw him do that night. I mean, I don't even know if he can do the bit today. But he said, I was just in Washington Square Park, which is right around the corner from my club. He said, I learned the history of Washington Square Park. Let me tell you, um, during slavery times, they used to hang white people and black people on different trees. I can just imagine the protests back then, all the black people. We want to be hung on the same trees as y'all. <laughs> Just like, you, you know, comedy is a series of misdirections and it's like a horror movie sometimes, you know, like that old thing where the guy's in, out has the trunk and he's about to put down the trunk and when he puts down the trunk, the monster's there. You're like, and comedy is a series of those things and you don't know what direction you're going, but you know, he was just an incredible guy. But also I'll just share with you, like there were a lot of people like Tracy Morgan, Tracy Morgan, if you were sitting here with me, you know, when I managed him in the beginning, I mean, he would say a thousand times, I'll never be Chappelle. I'll never have that kind of material. But what he had was this talent for physical comedy and being able to use his body and the way he talked and his persona and just making people feel safe and comfortable. And my experiences with him and getting Saturday Night Live, um, just, I, 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 no one would ever believe it. Or Jay Moore, who I met when he was a teenager and, and he was like booking acting roles left and right. The guy never took an acting class, <laughs> but, he, but he knew how to walk into a room and take the room and take the role away from people that deserved it more than him you think he deserved to get jerry Maguire? you know when they were like 100 people auditioning for that role opposite tom cruise was he the guy who should have been the guy who got it no but he never took no for an answer he auditioned for the quarterback jerry o'connell got it he auditioned for the babysitter with the jazz tapes I uh, forget that guy's name. He got, I think he auditioned, he might've auditioned for Donna Logue's part. Got it. And then he auditioned for Bob Sugar and he screen tested with Tom Cruise and he got it. 
after being fired from Saturday Night Live. You know, so that's the thing, like, and you, I think with talent, what I'm excited about are those people who can, it's funny, I think of a word that resonates with me, hit. And I guess I look for people who can create hits as well as they can take the hits. Mm. Ooh, and that's if you so can quotable. Figure, <laughs> and if you can figure out that, then you've got something because the way this crazy world works and Aaron, you're no stranger to it personally or professionally. I mean, the world will squash you like a fucking bug. And if you let it, and there's a lot of things that happen that, that are disappointing. Some are life threatening, some are, and you have to figure out why and what are you going to let it bother you going to let it like something happened to me the other day that I'm sharing with you I don't even know why I'm sharing with you but I think it's (laughs) fascinating so I tried to use a credit card that I had I've had for 25 years didn't work I called the credit card company I said um could you help me my my card isn't working oh yeah Mr. Katz we canceled your account I said, you canceled my, I've I've had the card for 25 years. I don't, I I haven't been delinquent. I pay every bill. Everything's paid off. What do you mean canceled? Uh, Yeah, you haven't used the card in four months, Mr. Katz. And and that's why we canceled you. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, if you're not going to use the card, we got to cancel. I'm like, could you, could you, could you send a smoke signal? Could you, could you give me a call? Could you? Could you maybe send a letter saying, please spend some money and then you'll keep the, (laughs) you know, and it was a card that had a significant amount of credit on. Now, is it, you know, is my life going to end because that happened? Well, no, but, you know, shit happens sometimes that like, oh, God, that's, that's like bone crushing. Like, that's like, why did they do that to me? Because they can. You know, because I don't control them. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing in business when you're a comedian. It's like, this is what I love about you doing your podcast. Uh, Excuse me, Aaron. Yeah, how you doing? Um, Your podcast is canceled. No, it's (laughs) not. Go fuck yourself. My podcast (laughs) will never be canceled unless I fucking cancel it. Bye. Yeah, there you go. And that's what it is. It's like, uh, you know, somebody telling somebody who's making a film, hey, listen, we're sorry, we, uh, the financier, it, they fell through, the financing came through, we, we can't do it, or we're in turnaround right now, we can't, we, we got to focus on this new film, we can't do your film now. Uh, but I, I, sorry, goodbye. Uh, but you make your own film. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Katz, uh, we're going to have to take away your film. Uh, No, you're not. No, you're fucking not. It's my fucking film, my money, my resources, my people. Go fuck yourself. And, And the thing is, is like, so 
the more variables that you can control as an artist or as whatever you're doing, I don't care if you're a 7-Eleven manager or, or if you're a hotel, you know, um, VP or an agent, it's like it's all about your happiness relies on how much of the variables you can control. I would bet anything to the audience listening to us today and watching this that the happiest you are in your professional life is when you're interviewing a guest. Yes or no? Me? Um, yes. No. So it's it's acting. I do love acting. I love writing. I love creating. That's when I'm the happiest. So I guess there is, yeah, but like the okay. sense but of that, control. because I. that's just, okay. Yeah. But, not, but that's okay. That's my fault for not laying it out differently. But the fact is the things that you love, the writing, no one can take away your writing. You wrote it and no one can stop it. Your podcast, no one can stop it. And, and that's the way it is. Yeah. Somebody might not be able to buy your writing, but you can self-publish your writing. You can produce your writing. Um, I did a special with Owen Smith, a, a comedian who I love, who's, a, who's also a writer and a creator. He, he, he bought 10 iPhones. He shot the special on iPhones and returned the iPhones the next day. Um, you know, so it's like we all have that ability to, to do things. And, and for me, like, I, it's interesting. I'm, I'm looking at myself when in this camera angle here. And I'm looking behind me and I, I see the ocean and I think to myself, it gets me emotional because I always said when I was a kid that I, I wanted to, I wanted to be by the ocean. That's all I wanted because it calmed me. And, and I did anything in my power to make that happen. When I came to LA, Fate is a strange thing. And I was managing Nick Swartzen. And Nick Swartzen had a friend who had an apartment in the apartment building above the Fig Tree Cafe on Oceanfront Walk in Venice Beach. If you've ever been there, it's where a guy sings Bombaleo seven times a day <laughs> underneath your window. And I think it's next to a halfway house and a crack den and but it was $850 a month and you looked out and there was the ocean. And I was there, I was in, I made it, I got there. Granted, a shithole, <laughs> but I'm there on the ocean. And I, I wanted that goal for myself and every day I wake up and this is something that I probably wouldn't recommend for anyone who's partaking in this podcast, but I wake up every morning and I say to myself, you're shit. You're, it's going to be over today. If you don't get your act together or you don't work hard on some stuff, what happens today affects what happens six months from today. Get stuff going, put stuff out there. You want to be on the ocean or you want to be in a fucking box outside Ashmont station, get your fucking shit together and make shit happen today. And so I'm hard on myself, but I want to feel the comfort of, of the water, as odd as it sounds. Now, 
and this is something that's going to even sound crazier. You probably the audience will probably uh, press stop on their uh, on their device, but you could, if there was no monetary value attached to it, and I wasn't able to do anything or sell anything or whatever. It was just I could live one place or the other with no. I had no financial gain from it. And you were to tell me I could have a palatial 25,000 square foot mansion in Bel Air, or I could have a one room studio apartment on the beach. I'd be living in the studio apartment on the beach. Because that means something to me. Everybody has things that mean something to them. And that's what drives me. And so I want things to go well. I want to have the same drive that my artists have. I want to have, I want them to have a bigger drive than me if that's possible. And, and when I look at artists, I think of the talent for the talent, the charisma, the ability to take the hit, but also produce hits. And somebody who has a vision, a dream, something that means something to them that they want to go for and shoot for to attain because every single person in the world starts off in their bedroom with fucking nothing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in a bedroom with a brother or sister or both, sometimes on a couch, sometimes on a floor, sometimes on a park bench, but we all start with nothing. I know what you're saying. Well, this person, you know, their parents had money and they were successful and they gave them an entrance into the business. I'm sure you could find a thousand examples. But, you know, I still look back to Chappelle coming to wa from Washington, D.C. to New York and living in an apartment and having nothing. And uh, I look at Dane Cook in his studio apartment on Hacienda, Hacienda and Fountain. $700 a month and the guy creating social media and being right by his side the first one in history to create social media where he pressed a button and sold out Madison Square Garden and Boston Garden twice these are the things the vision of Jeff Ross having the vision to go with me and together to the Friars Club and convince them to come to Comedy Central to bring the roast to Comedy Central, which has become the biggest franchise in that network's history. To sit down at a company that I merged with, um, with my partner at the time and create the concept for comedy dynamics and convince and talk to Whitney Cummings about doing the first album for uh, comedy dynamics, and now ten years later, it's the largest, probably one of the largest comedy dis distribution companies. I love the vision of whatever it is that that people have. It's exciting. I just, I, I, I love watching artists. I don't like a lot of artists' content um, because I guess I, when you when you watch Jim Jeffries do a gun control bit or Chappelle do sticks and stones, you know, it's kind of hard to watch somebody go on stage, you know, talking mm -hmm. about doing cocaine and drinking and, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and fucking a stool, you know, it's <laughs> like, uh, you know, obviously they're killing, but 
you know, if I hear one more time, you know, I love gay people and then go into a five minute routine of, of, of homosexuality. It's like, you know, the standards in our business of comedy are really, really high. And I'll tell you how high they are. I'll pose this question to your audience. Think about how many geniuses there are living, just living in music. Just think about how many there are. And I guarantee you could easily name 20 and you could probably name 50. Now take the time with your pen and your paper and jot down how many living comedy geniuses there are mm -hmm. that you believe that all the stuff they produce or most of it is just they're on another earth plane. How many are there? There aren't 50. Yeah. There aren't 40. There aren't 30. There aren't 20. And there aren't 10. And if there's five, that would be a miracle. Yeah, I was thinking five when you said that. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, could be, it, could be, it could be worse. You could be a female magician. <laughs> what do you have to look forward to? Yeah. Being the first female magician in history to be a household name. Imagine a profession where there's not one household name in that. Imagine, forget that. Look at the male magicians. How many magicians are household names? There's probably four. David Copperfield. <laughs> oh, David he's Blaine. alive? Yeah. <laughs> he's alive. He's, believe, it, believe it or not, not only, not only is David Copperfield alive, but you won't even believe this, but this will show you what I, what I see in an artist. Okay. <laughs> David Copperfield is 62 or three years old. Mm -hmm. Before the pandemic, he did 684 shows a year. Oh, my God. Okay? David Copperfield is the most financially successful person in entertainment, except for Oprah, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Michael Jordan. He made <laughs> $880 million last year. So... So, but there's him, there's uh, David Blaine, there's Chris Angel, Penn and Teller, uh, <laughs> Lance Burton, but maybe there's five that you know or whatever. So the point right. I'm trying to make is that imagine being in a profession where there's only five household names. Um, but I love that. But also, you know, there's certain things about certain artists where they might not have Chappelle's material but they're just amazing people. Like I represented Bert Kreischer for probably eight or 10 years. Uh, I remember pitching a show with Will Smith and Bert Kreischer was fantastic. But, <laughs> but, but Bert is like, you know, obviously again, he'll sit down and he'll tell you he's not Chris Rock. You know, he's not Jim Gaffigan. He's not, he doesn't, does, doesn't, not Trevor Noah, you know, but he is what he is, a lovable, huggable guy who's an amazing storyteller. So you don't get 
you know, the thought-provoking, masterful interweaving callbacks of, you know, Dennis Miller. But, you know, Bert is a master of the story. And he uses that talent to drive his other talents. This is a guy that every part of the business has said no to him. Film, TV, every, you know, but the podcast started his own podcast, full circle. Hey, Mr. Kreischer, we're here to cancel your pod. Go fuck yourself. I do my own podcast. And made it happen. You know, um, another guy who I started with, who I never managed, but I have enormous respect for. And um, I've never even really had a relationship with him. I probably haven't, I probably have talked to him maybe 20 times in my life for a, a short period of time is Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. But I used to see him killing in Boston when I was there. He used to kill. And I never really got his comedy. And I never really understood what was happening and why, what made him funny at the time. I, I, I was missing a link in my brain to what he was doing and how he was doing it. But he just, he had this drive about him. And, and here's a guy who's basically, I mean, been successful in every different lane of the business. I mean, the guy's, the guy's done stand-up, he's done radio, he's done podcasting, he's a host for the UFC, he's done hosting of Fear Factor, he gets scripted with, um, you know, news radio, which, by the way, was Ray Romano's first booking ever in acting, and he got fired, and his fate would have it. Joe Rogan got that role, which launched his career, and then Ray Romano's next thing was Everybody Loves Raymond, which launched his career. Fate is a very strange thing, but the point is, is that, and now Joe Rogan has become the Lorne Michaels of, of, Pod, I don't even know. I can't even call it podcasting what he does because that would be, I think that would be insulting. I mean, he's like a, a network broadcaster and distribution expert and marketing expert and content expert mm -hmm. and contrarian programming expert. You know, the, the politicians say when we go high, they go low or whatever it is. When they go low, we go high. Joe like looks at things sometimes. It's like, okay, when they reduce their content to shorter bits, I'll lengthen mine. You know, like who the fuck, if you could, if you said to yourself, hey, everybody, I'm starting my podcast. My first episode is three hours and 47 minutes. <laughs> People would tell you to go fuck yourself. Like, <laughs> you, you know, you've lost your mind. But the point being is that, you know, He's doing it and he's broken so many careers and who knows, you know, and I'm saying all these things still about all these people. And that's the thing. They could love me. They could despise me. They could respect me. They could have no respect for me. What they think of me is none of my business, which is another thing I want an artist to feel, mm -hmm. you know, I just want them to be whatever I I'm entitled to feel the way I do about people. I'm entitled to feel great feelings about people, even if some people out there might not 
presumably have great feelings about me. I don't, that doesn't, that doesn't affect me feeling great about them. And uh, I don't want artists to get hit like a bad review or somebody doesn't respect them or I don't want to hire you for this or that. And, and it's like, let it get to them because there's always a next thing. There's mm-hmm. always a path that leads to the next thing that, that, that fate will have or will take you there. And, um, and I, I love that about great artists. Yeah, I feel like resilience is a really important theme that's emerging in this conversation, you know? Keeping going, being able to withstand difficult times. Yeah, that's, not, that's kind of interesting to me because that really is one of the hardest parts I think about just comedy in general, but really kind of about life too. And also something else that you said that I loved was when you're talking about, you know, everyone starts in a bedroom. I think that's really inspiring because everyone's just in a bedroom right now. You know, like there's a lot of us that aren't doing anything or, you know, our lives have changed because of what's currently going on in the world. So we're literally in our bedrooms, on our couches, in our living rooms, trying to figure out what we want to do next. And as artists and creators, like sometimes that can be really, really frustrating. Our source of inspiration just aren't there anymore, you know, but it's kind of about like, what can you self-generate? What opportunities can you create for yourself? You know, how can you bounce back and be resilient in the current circumstance? You know, like this has been tough. Have you seen like a lot of shifts happening in entertainment because of what's currently going on, like with the people you're working with? How are they handling it? Well, the ones that aren't creating are not handling it well. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are figuring out their, ne- their next move and how they're going to do it are doing well. And that's just it. It's like the world is designed to fuck you. <laughs> it's also designed to give you the greatest, most magical moments that you could ever imagine in your life. So the sooner you realize that, the better you're going to be in business and personally. It's not going to be all great. And that's, they never teach you that in school. They never teach you about money in, in, in high school or grade school. They never teach you about death and dying. They never teach you about, you know, what it's like to be up against it. I'll never forget an interview I did with Rita Rudner. She gave me her daughter's uh, CD, and she said, uh, my daughter's a teenager, and I, I remember meeting with her, and I said, listen, honey, I can give you anything. I can buy you a guitar. I can get you a music studio. I can hire a writer for you. I can get a band here. I can get a music producer. I can build a studio in the house. I can set up a showcase for you anywhere and invite every music executive in the world. Uh, There's only one thing that I can't do for you. There's only one thing I can't give you. And she said to her mother, what's that? And her mother said, adversity. And that's what everybody needs to get to the next level. You need to have some kind of obstacles. That's what inspires us. That's what um, invigorates us. I mean, there's nothing greater than solving a problem and the feeling you have after the problem is over. But there's nothing greater than 
who knows if you're a guy and you there's a girl that you've always liked and and you never were able to get her to go out with you and you finally get her to go out with you or or there's a writer who's been writing books and getting rejections all his life and then finally he self-publishes something and it sells a million copies or or you want to get your first apartment and you furnish it and you get it for the first time and you put down the money it's a, you, you set the goal and you you do it or like when you decided to do your podcast it's like you started your podcast with zero listeners zero nothing nothing you had as many listeners as a dead guy before you released your first podcast. <laughs> a fucking coffin could have been there at the microphone before you released it and zero. But then you release it and something happens. The world tells you if you're doing something right or if you're doing something wrong. And the world will always tell you and believe me, it's told a lot of people what they did wrong in the past five years. But it's told a lot of people what they do right. And, and if your audience can just look to you and see what you're doing and how you're doing it, you're making it work. Do you have the audience that you want? No. Are you happy with the numbers you have? Probably not. And neither is Mark Maron. <laughs> I can guarantee you if I sat down with him, he'd be like, ah, I wish the numbers were better. Well, motherfucker, you're making millions. I know. I wish the numbers were better. Um, you know, is Dr. Phil happy? Um, no, he's not happy getting up at five in the morning every morning promoting a show. <laughs> but that's how you stay number one for 15 years. He's happy when he's interviewing people on the show. Howard Stern, how does he do it? This is a guy who I watched do Bud Bingo Fiesta. And now he's become the guy who does Barbara Walters interviews of a lifetime. <laughs> what happens? How do people do it? They change with the times. Since we're spending so much time just talking about entertainment, so what advice would you give? to someone that's listening to this, that's thinking like, I want to get started in entertainment or they have no idea how, or maybe they don't even really believe in themselves. What would you say to them? Well, the first thing I'd say is never believing in yourself and success go together like the words Kmart quality. Okay, that, that doesn't <laughs> go together. Doubt and success don't go together. Uh, pessimism and success don't go together. So success is about succeeding. Success is about positive vibes. You don't, success, you don't succeed with shit. Now, many people would argue, well, yes, you do. Have you seen that movie that just came out? But the point I'm trying to make is that you got to go out there and you got to get up 
and start moving. You, mm -hmm. you know, what was it that Wayne Gretzky said? He had this great quote that wasn't even grammatically correct. The one that he was said, like, skate where the, where the puck is going? <laughs> no, he said something like, uh, not coincidentally, it's no coincidence that uh, all of the shots I never took never went in the net or something <laughs> like that. The point is, is that just you got to get up and you got to do things. You got to just go and create and do things. Think of it this way. Think of the greatest musical artist, your favorite musical artist. And think about how many of their songs became top 10 hits. Think about that. If on one album they have one hit, they're fucking thrilled. If they have two, they're ecstatic. Three, it's like, oh my God. Well, what about the other nine? Yeah. You ever, ever have a feeling of how many jokes are written for Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon's monologues and how many get in? Literally, literally one to five percent get in and these are writers that are paid thousands of dollars it, mm -hmm. it's 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 about putting out the content and and maybe it's in a maybe we're in a one percent business maybe we're in a three percent business maybe the chances of you booking an acting job are one in a thousand but if I had the chance to play the lottery and have a one in a thousand shot of winning, I would play every fucking day. <laughs> so my advice to anybody listening is get out and fucking play. Mm -hmm. Play the game. Yes. You're going to be in slumps. You might go 0 for 56. But eventually, if you keep playing the game the right way, you're going to get a hit. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Aaron. I'm I adore so, you. <laughs> I love you. I'm so grateful you invited me to this. What an honor. Thank you. It's been lovely. As always, I always love talking to you, Barry. Wow. Every time I listen to an episode of a podcast that Barry's on or even have a conversation with him, I leave the room feeling super inspired. And I hope that I was able to give that gift to you guys via the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you so much, Barry, for joining us today. If you guys are not supporting us already on Patreon, consider doing so. Head to patreon.com slash Aaron Darling, because there you will find ways to support the podcast. And in return, I'm going to give you guys custom essays. You are getting bonus episodes of the podcast and also some cool other perks and digital photo sets every month thank you so much to everyone that is already supporting us there if you guys got something out of this episode share it with someone who might benefit from this information or who might enjoy hearing Barry talk on hot pizza ass thank you again i'm erin darling teralva have a great week